Leading a school in the middle of an education revolution, I draw upon the wisdom of experts and educational visionaries to identify future realities and gain direction from where we are to where we need to be. Please join me as we identify our final destination and map out a path through the uncharted. Thank you for joining me on Asking for Directions. I am your host, Matt Owsley. Our guest today is a professor of education and director of the Melbourne Education Research Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. He is an award-winning education researcher and best-selling author with nearly 30 years of experience examining what works best in student learning and achievement. His research, better known as Visible Learning, synthesizes more than 1,600 meta-analysis comprising of more than 90,000 studies, and I'm sure all of this has changed by now, <laughs> um, involving over 300 million students around the world. His work has been described as profoundly important and groundbreaking. I am very excited to welcome Dr. John Hattie. Great to be here talking with you, Matt. So the first thing um, that I wanted to, uh, to talk about, you know, I, I feel like that your work is, it's so extremely important, but I also feel like it's probably um, misrepresented quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think that part of that is, uh, I, I think people really love the graphic that, um, that everybody has seen, you know, has the nice little chart. I can see that this one is bigger than the other one. And so people take that and they make these big assertions about all of the research behind all of that. And next thing you know, they're leading professional development um, and making these big decisions surrounding maybe some misunderstandings that they have. And so I'm hoping that through some of my questions, we'll be able to um, kind of dig through a little bit of that to have a better understanding. So the first question that I have is really just that. What is the biggest misunderstanding that educators have about visible learning research? Well, you're absolutely right. And I obviously take responsibility for any misunderstandings that I may have contributed to. And it was really interesting when I, I wrote um, five drafts of the book. And on the fourth draft, I was very, very proud of the final product. It was 500 pages. It was resplendent with numbers that had you know what in it and and my wife read it and she said, and what two people in the world are you writing this for? And it was a bit of a sobering comment as only spouses can do. And so she said, you need some graphics in it. So she invented those dials. And so I put those dials in and at the last minute I thought, well, let me add all the um, influences as an appendix. And it's kind of like a league table. Now in many senses it worked. It, it grabbed attention. It made people see it. On the other hand, a lot of the misinterpretations come from that. In fact, um, mid last year, I released a gold paper where we outlined 70 different criticisms of visible learning and three quarters of them came back to a single mistake. And that is they're assuming that every one of those influences is unique and somehow stands alone. And if you open page one of the book, the book says it's about the overlap. And so many have looked at those, those charts, looked at those diagrams and said, aha, this thing has a high effect size, therefore. And they don't realize that the, the 20 years it took me to write that book was about the overlap. And so many of the critics prove quite clearly they have never read a single thing about what it said. And that has led to a lot of misinterpretation. And I could go on about some of the specific ones where people have picked out and said, well, it's a low effect size. He must be wrong. And they've never read the text about why it's low. Because it's low, maybe it's critically 
important that we understand why it's low and not dismiss it. And so that's been the biggest criticism. And if I ever get around to writing a sequel, it will be focused as I tried to do in the first one on the overlap. But some of those charts have got in the way. Well, and, and I think uh, people being willing to put in the time to dig through the research, that's, that's a bigger issue than just in, uh, in the work that you have done. Um, I think it's just easy to, uh, to take a look at a graphic and, um, and, and just pretend that we know. And I think that's probably a bigger issue even outside of education. But um, one the of the questions... The other part of it, Matt, is yeah, yeah. since I wrote that book 10 years ago, I've published, <laughs> believe it or not, another 20 books that are related to visible learning, trying to get that nuances across, trying to get the whole message across. But again, many of the critics go back to the original work, misinterpret it, and um, keep perpetuating the myth that somehow I'm arguing those influences are somehow unique, standalone, and it's not about the overlap. And the other thing that I've discovered, um, which has been very wonderful from my perspective, is working with people who are actually implementing the ideas in schools. And that, again, leads to changes and modifications and updates. So I'm continuing to learn, and I hope, I'm sure, all your listeners continue to learn about how you can implement these notions. And that's why a few years ago, I switched my major message to Know Thy Impact. Because what that book is about is about what has happened. And that doesn't mean to say it will happen that way in your class and your school. And that's why I'm delighted that you choose high probability interventions, but I'm much more interested in what happens and what is the impact when you introduce it in your school. And that's where we're working at at the moment. I don't think that you're saying that just because something on that chart, you know, whether it is a, a negative or a minute effect um, compared to some of the other ones, that you're saying that they aren't valuable at all. And so what I'm wondering from you is that are there things on the chart that you can point to specifically that you do believe holds um, value that maybe other people would make the wrong interpretation and say, well, let's just cut that all together? Yeah, there are, and, and I certainly don't resolve from those charts that we're now trying to produce. Uh, to make that story easy and to try and get the message, it's fascinating to me that over the many years since I've been working on this, no one that I found has come up with a different interpretation. And again, last year, we released all the data, and it's keeping updating it, and I'm keeping to update it in a, um, a website called MetaRex. Uh, it's a free website, and all the data is on there, and my challenge is for people to take it and come up with alternatives. Like for a couple of examples that you're specifically talking about, Matt, the first one is open classrooms, innovative learning environments. Um, they have an effect size of zero. But what's fascinating is that research was primarily done in the 1970s and 1980s. And what we found is that every time you take out walls of classrooms, teachers are very good at finding bookcases, filing cabinets and plants to recreate a classroom. No wonder it didn't work. But if you go into innovative learning environments in many schools around the world today, and there's an enormous number of them here in Australia, you'll see some of the most exciting, fascinating and powerful uh, learning you'll ever see. And it's primarily because we've learned that if you have 100 kids in a classroom and you have three or four teachers, those teachers have to work and plan and critique together. And so if you were updating that meta-analysis now, you would find a dramatic difference because we've learned why it was a low effect size. Another example is problem-based learning, discovery learning, inquiry learning. They all have incredibly low effect sizes. And the question then arises, why are they so low? Now, many critics will then come in and say, well, it must be wrong. Well, we course problem-based learning works. You know, what possibly could be wrong with it? Except that it doesn't work. 
And the reason it doesn't work is because it's introduced too early. If you introduce problem-based or discovery-based learning before the students have the content matter to do the discovery problem-based learning, the effect size is incredibly low. Uh, the best example is um, in, in medicine, which problem-based learning is very common. First year medicine, the effect size is zero to negative. Fourth year medicine, the effect size is 0.5 because it's introduced too early in first year. And so I think, and the point I'm making here is that by discovering that an effect size is very low doesn't mean we dismiss it. It changes the question to ask, we need to understand why it's so low so we can improve it. And that applies to quite a few of the effects. And so I think there's some very good examples that we shouldn't just dismiss them. And the one that I probably don't like talking about the most is class size. Now that effect size is positive. And so we know that reducing class size enhances achievement, but it's very, very small. And once again, it begs the question, why is it so small when it's so obvious that it shouldn't be? And again, I think we know the reason. And the reason is that too often, when teachers go from larger classes to smaller classes, they don't change how they teach. So they don't optimize and realize the advantages of having fewer kids. And so the argument is that you, you don't not reduce class sizes, you retrain the teachers to optimize the power of smaller classes before you do that. And so this notion where people have picked out the effect size and said, no, we're not gonna use them because Patty shows they're low, they should be saying, the evidence shows they're low. We need to understand why so we can improve it. Well, and maybe the um, the benefit isn't necessarily seen in student outcomes, um, but maybe the benefit is in other areas. Like one of the uh, one of the factors is the uh, values and moral education programs. You know, and maybe the reason that I put that in place as an educational leader has nothing to do with student achievement. So Look, you're absolutely right, and you know, the whole social and emotional side of things. Like the one that I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on at the moment, um, we, we've known it as cooperative learning. Now, its effect size is pretty reasonable, 0 0.4, 0 0.5. The effect on a lot of the non-academic outcomes is much higher. And so what I'm asking is, what can we do to improve the nature of the cooperative learning to not only improve the social and emotional, which is already high, but to up, even upskill and upscale the achievement? And we're reinventing it around the notion of student collective efficacy. Um, because the mistake I think we've made in that area is that we haven't taught the students how to optimally work in groups. I don't know about you, Matt, but for me, I'm guilty of this. Many times I say, it's much easier for me to do it by myself than work in a group. <laughs> well, that's right. not conducive to academic outcomes in cooperative groups. And so dealing with those kind of confidence things about groups I would hope, and this is what we're working on at the moment, would take cooperative grouping even to a new high. Because you're absolutely right. Their effect on social and emotional, when it works, is quite dramatic. So let's up the achievement to meet it. So yes. So a question that I have for you, because I think that a lot of the people that maybe do spend some time at least digging into the research that you've presented, um, and like you said, I know that you've written a lot of books, and I can't say that I have read uh, the majority of the <laughs> things that you've written. I don't know how you've put out that many um, but, you know, but a question that I have is from the point of view of a school leader, um, and I know there's a lot of factors in all of this, but if you took the role as a school leader, are there specific practices or programs or structures that you would put in place that you would say these are non-negotiables for my school? Um, not quite. I think that's, um, 
the mistake we make is asking for the structures and the programs. And certainly what I would be arguing strongly is it's about a way of thinking. It's a mind frame, it's a mindset. And I think we've been overly obsessed with structures. We've been overly obsessed with teaching. Quite frankly, Matt, I don't care less how you teach. And I think that's been a huge problem in our business is that we've had professional learning on how to teach this. We've had programs that have come into schools. Um, we've got resources, we've got apps, we've got websites. And there's nothing wrong with all those, except they're not the key difference. I don't care how you teach. I care about the impact of your teaching. And I think the biggest thing that a, a school leader can do is to create a safe environment in a school where the staff can bring along evidence of their impact. They can ask questions such as, is this work over a three month period showing sufficient growth? Is the artifacts of the kids work? Can I talk to the students in the classes about what it means to be a learner in this class? And trying to have a debate and have a discussion about the nature of impact. Because one of the things that happens so often in our business, and your country is as guilty as my country of this, is you get a new principal, you get a new superintendent, you get a new something or other, and they want to introduce a new program. Well, what they're doing is they're assuming that the current situation isn't very good. And one of my findings, clearly, is at least, I would argue, 60% of the teachers and schools in your country are doing a very good job now. Why do we want to change those? Why don't we start by recognizing that excellence is all around us? Our problem in education is that we so often look for failure and try and fix things as opposed to look for success and try and upscale. And so that's why I'm nervous when you say, what's the best programs? Because you're looking for that holy grail to come in. And you've got to start by saying, well, have I got the courage to dependably, reliably identify the excellence that's here? The teachers that truly are allowing their kids to gain more than a year's growth for a year's input. Can I fill the coalition of success around those and grow it? But unfortunately, that's not what many school leaders think that their job is. That's not what many superintendents think their job is. They think it is to go and read Hattie's Visible Learning, find the silver bullet and implement it. Sorry, it probably won't work. I 100% agree with you. Um, I, wa I watched a video, um, and I can't remember when you had actually made this video, but you were talking about uh, the mind frames um, and, and you had made a comment about how two teachers, two different teachers can do the same high impact strategy for their kids, but get totally different uh, success levels. And so like what ways would one teacher that would be successful think of it compared to another? I know that's a hard question to answer in the period of time that I gave, but just curious. That's fine. And, 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 and indeed, right now, we're about to publish a book on the mind frames for principals to try and get across school leaders across the same message. Let's imagine you're going to take a high probability intervention like reciprocal teaching, which has a very high effect size, and two teachers implement it. One teacher, their mindset is, now look, these kids come from poor areas, low socioeconomic status. They have very low expectations for the success for those students. And the other teacher, same group of kids, has very high expectations. Those expectations will dominate. And you will find that the teacher who introduces reciprocal teaching with low expectation students, it will not work. The chances of it working are very, very low. It's not the method. It's the way they think about their students. It's the way they raise expectations, their notions of challenge. Now, when you put the two together, high expectations and high probability, that's what it's about. But again, the role of school leaders is to make sure both those teachers not focus so much on why they chose reciprocal teaching but focus on what was the impact with their students? 
And what you find then, what happens is the low expectation teaches, well, it didn't work. So we're going to drop it. And you drop it and you try another silver bullet and you miss the key ingredient. And that is those expectations, their way of thinking about their students. Um, the other problem, Matt, is that you, you take any program, and this is notorious in education, particularly the higher it comes down from the top, the problem is implementation. Many, many programs are not implemented. Teachers are stunningly good at adapt, adapting things. And sometimes they adapt the innovation out of some in, uh, interventions. And so once again, you're focusing on what is the impact in my school? What do I mean by impact? And as you said before, impact isn't just high achievement. It's turning kids on to learning. And quite frankly, I'd rather have teachers turn kids on to learning than worry about high impact if I was given the choice of one or one of the two of those. Because when you look at the Jenkins curve, 95% of kids who start school at age five want to go to school to learn. By the end of primary school, start of high school, it's down to 37%. That's a travesty. And so turning kids on to learning is really exciting. And there are lots of good ways of doing that and getting high achievement. So you, uh, I know that you've talked a lot about knowing thy impact and um, you kind of made a comment about that right now. I know that it means more than just, you know, doing formative assessments and understanding, hey, I just did this strategy and here's what I've seen. And you've talked about how it might mean turning kids on to learning. But if you were going to kind of make a, an overall statement, is there more to include in that, in knowing thy impact? Oh, yeah. And like, I, I could go on and wax lyrical about what I mean by the notion of know thy impact. What I'm much more interested in is what the teachers in a particular school understand what impact means and what the students in that school mean by impact. Like when I go into schools and we do this at the start of every time we work with the school, we ask the teachers, what do you mean by impact? What is a good learner? Uh, what is the nature of learning in this school? Who's a good learner? And, and for teachers, we usually get a very rich description, varied but rich. When we ask the students, sadly, too often, it's a good learner is someone that comes on time, is well prepared, has done their homework, sits up straight and watches the teacher work. Well, that's not learning at all. And for many kids, particularly as they get older, around the ages of 10, 11, that kind of compliance turns them off. Learning's messy. And so how do you see errors as opportunities to learn? And so this is when we talk about impact. It's the notion of, yes, we want high achievement. Yes, we want high progress. Yes, we want the students engaged in learning. Yes, we want to know what learning strategies the kids use. When, when something doesn't work, what's your alternative strategy? And for many kids, there isn't one. They keep doing the same as what they did before and wonder why it doesn't work the second time. That's looking at learning strategies. And as you've said earlier, the whole disposition to learn, the willingness to want to come in mastery and learn. Um, you know, too many kids come to school just to be with their friends, just to pass the test, just to hand in the work, regardless of the quality. Now, that's not learning. That's not the excitement that we all came into this business for. And so, yes, the notion of impact is quite varied. Um, it's a basket of goods. And I think we need to be clearly of that. And I'm horrified if any kid walks into a classroom and teacher thinks the impact is high test scores. Oh my, how boring can that be for some kids? And, and it's, it's similarly when I look at curriculum and too often curriculum is how we add more as opposed to how we add less and go deeper. And I'm sure if I ask you, Matt, to remember what you learned when you were in primary school, you'd probably think of particular times when you studied something in quite depth. It's not just adding more. And if you don't believe me on that, Matt, what did you learn when you were a 10-year-old in social studies, history, or maths? 
and unfortunately, a lot of the things that I can remember were, uh, you know, we're reading the uh, chapter and we're taking the test at the end of the book. And um, and that was it. You know, I, I can even remember having the conversation with my mom around that age where I said, you know, why can't we when we go to school, learn something that is meaningful? Um, I mean, it's, it's something that our kids question. And as a teacher, I mean, I remember having kids ask me that, you know, wh- why do we have to learn this? And um, I think it's a question we're going to have kids keep asking as long as we aren't tying things to uh, to the real world or, or giving authentic tasks. Well, I'm, no, I'm not sure about that. I don't like the notion of real world authentic because a lot of learning isn't. It's the. Let me ask you a different question here to illustrate that map. What was the best teacher you ever had? Oh boy, um, my my kindergarten teacher probably. <laughs> Why? I and mean, by the way, name name him or her, please. We've got to give credit to these people. Uh, Miss Miss McDonald, and uh, why, why she. McDonald? Well, she uh, she um, sang a lot of songs. We played guitar. Um, she had her dog. That was a thing back then. I guess you could do that. Um, but we just had a lot of fun, and um, and she made a lot of really good connections with us. And so every day you would show up, and we were going to make something, or we were going to build something. But there was also a lot of play that was associated with learning, and it wasn't just sitting there, um, you know, varied activities that we would do. And so it, it was just, I, I just remember it being a lot of fun. We did a study a few years ago um, where we asked hundreds of adults to do exactly what you just did there. What was your best teacher? Name them and why. And when we analyzed that data, it came out, firstly, the thing that was surprising is that at best, most people can remember about two of those kinds of teachers, even though we're exposed to about 50 of them. So about 4%. But the thing for the why was two reasons. Either the teacher turns you on to their passion. In this case, in your case, with Ms. McDonald, passion of teaching, passion of doing things. And or that teacher saw something in you you didn't see in yourself. Not one of those adults said it was because of maths or English. Not one of those adults said it was to do with friends and other things. It was all to do with that teacher turning them onto passion and having that expectation that you can do something better. Now, when you think of it like that, if that's what we remember as adults, your point earlier, that social and emotional connection is probably more critical to determine whether you're gonna turn on to the passion of, of depth. And the depth of achievement, you know, a lot of the things, as with Ms. McDonald, she connected to what you already knew. She didn't make it real world. Hey. Is play real world? Is bringing a dog into a class real world? I don't think so. But the connection to what actually you knew was the critical part. So another question that I have uh, about all of that then, because I know that you've also done work in um, teacher evaluations. So here we are in a system that uh, evaluates everybody on everything, whether it's standardized achievement scores or um, you know, or these, uh, these different systems that as administrators, I go into a classroom and I'm looking for specific things in their teaching practices to say whether or not they're, they're effective or not. And here you're naming things that are outside of that. Like, I don't see those things you just now named. Like, maybe there's a, a sentence that says the teacher has good connections with students. But if the things that truly make someone a great teacher or somebody that we remember are not on these lists. Are there are there changes to evaluation systems that we should be considering, um, or are there issues with the current systems we use that we should really be taking a closer look at? Look, I, I struggle with a lot of the current evaluation systems, and you know, I look at what's happening in your country with someone coming in the back, sitting with a 
piece of paper in a tick box and ticking boxes. I, I struggle to find any evidence that shows that makes a difference to the li learning lives of kids. And even when you, like, you take things like the Danielson or the Mazzano, 80% of the boxes you tick in that are about how you teach. And to be fair to Danielson and Mazzano, they never invented their instruments to be misused this way. And it's like you say, we, we go into a classroom to see if a teacher is doing what we would do if we were in that classroom. It's the wrong focus. Only 20% of the items in Danielson and Mazzano are about the impact on students. And going back to what I said before, I don't care how you teach. I want that evaluation to be based on the impact of kids. I want that evaluation to be based on you as a teacher, Matt. What's your evidence that you would bring to me that you are having an impact on kids? And what are you doing about it? Because in every classroom I've ever worked in, it's tough. There are tough kids out there. And understanding that and showing how you can get through those kids. I also want to interview those same kids about their experience about being a learner. Uh, they want to come to school to learn. And I'd be triangulating that with some of the other data. But at the moment, that incredible evaluative focus on are you doing it the right way, as if we know there is a right way, is just bonkers. And so I have nothing wrong with teacher evaluation. Great supporter of it. But I want to make it a dialogue. And when you look at things in, in your country, like the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards, I think they kind of got it right. It's a variety of tasks relating to the impact on students. And if you look, for instance, as I have done, I, one of my tasks many years ago was to look at the videos of the top 1,000 teachers in English, English language arts to, to, to write a report about what was common. And my report said nothing. Teachers can teach in incredibly varied ways. There is no right way of teaching. But oh my goodness, there is a right ways of demonstrating impact. So yes to teaching evaluation, but no to that stuff that's going on in your country, in my country at the moment, that's bonkers, where we come up with all these test scores, all these numbers, and think that they tell the story. So going back to uh, the visible learning, and again, and I'm sorry to to mention the charts, because I know that that's such a small part of what you did. <laughs> wrong with the but, charts. So we've you know, changed I, them to try and get away from ranking <laughs> them to putting them out there to say, hey, there's overlap. Well, in, but I think that uh, so many people just use it. I mean, like I've seen it in so many professional development pieces. I, I must admit I'm probably guilty of that at some point in time um, of doing that as well. And so, you know, I know that one of the things that shows a high impact um, that you've talked about extensively is feedback. And there's some of those pieces, uh, some of those elements maybe at the top end that have shown to have, uh, have high impact. If you were going to be looking at whether it's teacher evaluation or professional development or any of the things that we do to the teachers as administrators, are there certain areas that uh, that correlate with those um, those high impact strategies that you would spend more time on? Oh yeah, and let me make a comment about feedback because we've just um, with two German colleagues just published an article on feedback that may surprise people because the effects of feedback is dropped dropping dramatically. And the reason it's dropping dramatically is so many people have said, ah, feedback, we're going to do feedback. And they do it badly. And they don't realize that the biggest issue in feedback is the incredible variability of the effects of feedback. And I've certainly spent 10, 15 years of my research time trying to understand that variability. And if you don't understand the variability, you miss the point. And many have, and many have introduced feedback systems, and they don't work because they don't focus on the where to next. Uh, they don't focus on how the recipient is interpreting that feedback. And it comes back to your question about teacher evaluation. Like I can collect all the data in the world from the classroom, from classroom observation, from test scores. 
but the key is the interpretation of where to next. And this is where you get a poverty in a lot of the current evaluations. The interpretations are usually done by one person, either the teacher or the person doing the observing, and there's no dialogue. There is no such thing as immaculate perception. What are the different perceptions we have of what's happening? What's the different interpret? And some teachers misinterpret what's happening. Some principals misinterpret what's happening. And that's the power of education and teaching, clarifying those conceptions. And similarly, when you look at whether it's what where to next, as I said before, I struggle to find any evidence that many of those teacher evaluations lead to improvements. Surely that's why we do it. Surely we should be going back three months later and looking at how the class has improved in light of our discussion. And if it hasn't, maybe the teaching evaluation system is just not worth it and it's sometimes destructive. There should be evidence of improvement. You'd expect that as a teacher. You go and introduce a program, you'd expect the kids to improve. If you don't, you'd probably stop it. Why haven't we stopped many of our current methods of evaluation that don't pass that test? So a question that I have, I don't have, uh, I don't have a bunch more for you. Um, and I will tell you one thing, you know, I've interviewed uh, a number of people and the way that you um, answer questions, you knock out a lot of questions. <laughs> you are, you are very good at answering questions. I love you probably, talking about stuff. <laughs> well, and, and that shows, and, um, and it also shows a, a really a great depth of knowledge. And I appreciate everything that you've said. If I can jump to, I kind of have two different things that I would like to end with if possible. Um, one is that if you could give educational leaders an actionable step that they really should start with, that would make the biggest difference for their kids, what would it be? Diagnose. Spend some time diagnosing what you're doing right now. Like every one of you in this business, every teacher in the world has a very strong theory about teaching. And I want you to question that in a good way. I want you to get someone to come in and interview your students about what it means to be a learner in this class, who is a good learner in this class. What do they do when they make mistakes? I want to feed that back to you. I want you to get a sense and, and do some classroom observation of what's happening to the students when you're doing your teaching, not watching you, but watching the students. I want someone to come along and, and take the role of a coach and help you listen to their interpretation of what it means to be a student in your class and vice versa, what you mean by being a student in your class and align that. And in many cases, you get a very positive story. You might get a few kids where it's not working and that notion of diagnosis. And what I'm trying to say, Matt, is don't rush in um, to find the magic answer. Start by working out what's going on in your current situation. Talk with your colleagues and take along a piece of kids' work three months apart and talk about that sense of growth, what your expectations are. And so I'd be starting there with really good diagnosis. Now, one of the problems in our business is we have this word reflection. And I'm not a great fan of the notion of reflection if it means that teachers sit and reflect on what they are doing because probably 80% of what happens in their class, they don't see or hear. So why would you reflect on the 20%? I want reflection kind of like Alice in Wonderland, where she went through the mirror and saw herself from the other side. That's what I'm talking about in diagnosis. How do you get to see yourself as others see you? And the most critical others are your students and your peers. Uh, not your peers about you, but your peers about your impact on kids. Now, here's the bad, bad side of that. It takes time and resources to do that. But that's where I want to spend the money. Building that collective efficacy within a school now you can have these kind of discussions. 
you can look at what growth means and progression means. And so that's my answer. Start with diagnosis. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and so, and I don't remember if I ever told you this, but the name of my podcast is asking for directions with the idea. And the way that I think about that is that we need to know where we're going. We need to really know what our purpose is in education. We need to know where we're going, but in order to be able to figure out where do I make my turns, um, in which direction do I head, I do have to know my current location. So I a hundred percent agree. And I think that that's, uh, maybe an area that's missing in a lot of places that I've seen too. So I really appreciate you saying that. I agree. Going back to that that statement that I just made, though, um, about the purpose of education, I know that you have a book coming out this summer. As far as I understand, it's coming out this summer called The Purposes of Education. Um, and so I'd love to hear if you can kind of tell me a little bit about that that current work, if you could. Yeah. Like, as you can imagine, I have a lot of critics out there. And a lot of the critics are about, in my, my view, the wrong stuff. But there are some out there that I listen to. I've learned from them. And I had one particular one in, from Denmark, um, Sten Lepelarsen. And he sent me some of the writings he was doing. And in most cases, in your cases, I never react to critics. I think that academia exists um, and its fundamental existence is, a, is critique. And so I welcome the critique. Uh, but in his case, I did start a, a discussion with him um, through email. It got a little heated at times. Um, and he, he took the heat, he gave the heat back. And at one point he said, I want to come out to Australia and sit and talk with you. And my first reaction was, oh, wow, you know, we, we're so different. He was a philosopher. Um, he, clearly in Denmark, where they've used visible learning a lot, as we started this conversation, that there were some often many misinterpretations. But there are also some schools, the whole Scallenberg area, doing stunningly exciting good stuff uh, in the name of visible learning. And so I said yes. And so he came out to Australia. We spent a few weeks and um, we ended up, as is not unusual in the philosophy area, having a book that's a discussion. And yes, the book is in press at the moment. Uh, it's called The Purposes of Education. And it's a discussion between Sten, philosopher, and, and myself, the, the, the measurement educationalist. And what we really try to address is that question we've alluded to around this podcast. What are the many purposes of education? How do you actually get that right? Because it's the point you were making is that we do need to have a vision. We do need to have a success criteria. And right at the moment in schools, everything seems to be dumped on schools. We've just had bushfires here in Australia. So now we have to deal with how do you teach teachers to teach kids about bushfires? And you name it, it gets dumped on a school. And there comes a point where you have to be serious and say, can we really expect any individual, any teacher to command all that knowledge, all that understanding around all the things we ask of kids? Like when I went to school in the 1950s, there was no expectation that the teacher had any responsibility for my social and emotional well-being. We do now. And I'm not saying that's not a bad thing. In fact, sometimes it's a very good thing. But that extra responsibilities we're putting on. So we address that in the book. What is the purposes of education? Um, how would you know? And um, I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it because Sten brought a dramatically different perspective to the whole issues of education from a philosophical point of view. And um, it's how a philosopher and a, a measurement person get together. So I hope your listeners enjoy our discussion. And that sounds like a book that uh, that's really needed right now. I really appreciate the time that you took with me today. Can't wait to read your book and just appreciate your insight and time. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, mate. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. All right. Thank you.
All right, we did it. Thank you so much for joining me on Asking for Directions. And a special thank you to all you educators out there that are doing the hard work every day. You truly make a difference, and I am blessed to be on this journey with you. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you are notified when a new episode is posted, and rate and review this podcast, and please share it with your friends. Thank you so much for joining me.